G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Please pray with me as we come to dwell a little longer on Joel's uh, message to us, especially the first half of chapter 2. Please pray with me. God in heaven, this morning in our comfort, in our ease, in our security and riches, we come to look at a time in the history of your people uh, where they had none of those things. And Father, we pray, would you please speak to us today using those old, old words from Joel. Father, may we learn more of you, the one who has been since the very beginning and before the beginning. Uh, May we learn uh, something of you and your great mercy, uh, something of your eternal plan that is for all the ages. And Father, may we learn it not just with our heads, but with our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We knew the world would not be the same. At 5.29am or thereabouts on July the 16th in 1945, that's 1945, at the White Sands Proving Ground in New Mexico in the US, there was an explosion. It was deliberate and the repercussions of that explosion are still felt to this very day. I don't think it's any exaggeration. J. Robert Oppenheimer, the mastermind or one of, of that first ever man-made nuclear explosion, the Trinity Test, as it became known, the prequel to Hiroshima, but especially Nagasaki, Oppenheimer remembered the moment that the bomb went off, and he remembered the moment when the light and the roar and this never-before-seen wave of destruction unfolded before his eyes. And he said many years later about that moment, we knew the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, now I am become death the destroyer of worlds. And he said, I suppose we all thought that, one way or another. Well, welcome back to our series in in Joel chapter 2 this morning, or in Joel's uh, message to us. I think it's fair to say that Joel 2, at least in the mind of Joel, is something of a Trinity test kind of a moment. I hope that's not too much of an exaggeration. Certainly this man, uh, as a man, I mean, he was inspired by God, but this man, Joel, in his estimation, he was looking upon the destroyer of worlds um, in this plague, as this locust plague had savaged the land of God's people in the 6th century or thereabouts BC, and it had annihilated their lives, or at least annihilated their hope of lives into the future. And as a prophet from the Lord God, he's interpreting that in this real end of the world kind of sense. Guys, this is it, the day of the Lord, and you have only begun to see the, the sunrise of this great and terrible day. And today we're going to focus on the response that he calls for. Uh, So last week we saw something of the tragedy, we're going to see something of that again this week, but we're going to focus on the response. I think it's there in verse 12, it's it's fairly easy to wrap our minds around in a sense. Uh, Verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, 
with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for his gracious and compassionate. Verse 14, who knows he may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. What is the response? The response is repentance. Turn, come on, return, even now, turn back to the Lord in the midst of this um, terrible destruction, won't you? Oh, the calamity, it has all gone bad, but maybe, maybe if you return to God, He will return to you. So we spent a bit of time last week talking about repentance, we're going to spend a little bit more time talking about that today. Uh, But I want to say right from the outset that Joel, if we look closely that it may not be the repentance that you're thinking of when you think of repentance. Would Joel be a fan of some of the fire and brimstone preaching uh, that uh, we hear today? Well, some of it perhaps, but some of it I'm not so sure. Yes, it's highly charged, it's this fearsome, emotionally gruelling passage and it calls for an emotional response. Yeah, all of those things, but... Would Joel be a fan of some of the sackcloth and ashes repentance that goes on today? Not all of it, I don't think, as we'll see as we explore this topic of repentance. Nor would he be impressed by hearts that are completely unmoved um, by the judgment of God. So just what exactly does the real deal look like? Does real, genuine repentance, what is the anatomy of real repentance and how do I identify the fakes, the counterfeits, the the frauds, the phonies. Even within my own heart, how how can I tell the difference between genuine repentance, that is heartfelt, that is rend your heart kind of thing, how do I tell the difference between that and frankly putting it on, putting on a big old show? Um, Are there some helps for us here? I'm hoping Joel is a massive help, I'll try and speak clearly, I'm hoping Joel is a massive help to us in this. Let's start Where the passage begins, as I said, we're only going to look at the first half of it uh, today. Let's start where the passage begins with the fear, uh, as we think that, as we look at the topic of raw fear ain't real repentance. He definitely starts with it, you know, fear, alarm, just quaking in their boots, uh, as we're about to read. Fear at the judgment of God. And while I want to say that I think fear has to be part of the picture, it's got to be part of the picture of repentance. Um, it is not the whole story. Uh, repentance isn't the same as scaredness, you know, that's not the sum of what repentance is. So let's begin by reading and uh, I don't know about you but I just get the impression that um, this scene that he describes has just been etched onto his very eyeballs, uh, the, this palpable terror as Joel recalls it for us. Joel chapter 2 and verse 1, let's just read the first 11 or so verses. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Zion is uh, another name for Jerusalem, kind of the heartland city of God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spread across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. 
They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry with a noise like that of chariots. They leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The sky trembles. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? C.S. Lewis once said about pain and painful experiences, he said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone, said Lewis, his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And you get the sense, Joel was hearing loud and clear at this point. He heard loud and clear. It's, it's a bit different, isn't it, from last week? Do you remember last week's passage? Uh, what, what was, how would you describe that? It was kind of like Joel was going around the city. Can you remember? It was like he was shaking the different people, the drunkard with the drink in his hand. And he was just, or the, uh, the, the priest or whomever it was, he was just walking around the city, shaking these people. We're going to starve, man. Have a look at the reality that we're staring down the barrel of. We're going to die here. What's this week? This week's reliving the invasion, isn't it? It's re-seeing that thing that's etched onto his eyeballs, the scene as plague upon plague comes waving over the mountains towards them, towards the city, and the sounds in his ears and the way that the, the, the plagues of locusts shut out the sun and the light of the stars and there's only darkness and they just cannot, cannot keep them out. There seems to be absolutely nothing that they can do to resist them. You know, they're city walls that would have kept armies of men at bay for days and weeks. These locusts just run straight up them and dance along the top. They can do nothing, it seems, to keep them out. And the horror is just palpable in Joel's description of it. We didn't stand a chance. Here is the day of the Lord, this taste, and it is dreadful. Who can endure it? What it seems to be for Joel is is it's a taste of God taking God's people on which is awful for two reasons when you think about it. It's awful because it's God, and secondly, it's awful because he's taking God's people on. You know, I mean, uh, verse 11, who is the one leading this destruction? You know, this irrepressible, irresistible, invincible army, this world-destroying horror. Is the destruction, perhaps, is it some work of a demonic, anti-God, anti-everything, good and peaceful, some malevolent devil of a creature? Oh no, it's much worse than that. Because if it were a malevolent kind of devil of a creature, well, at least God's still on our side, right? We've still got our God to beat up on this evil force, but no, no. Verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. 
His forces are beyond number. This is the moment when God's people realise, hang on a sec, he's not on our side at all. And then secondly, it's God, but he's against God's people. We understand, of course, God taking apart the bad guys. I mean, you, you think about the language of this passage of locusts and plagues. What does it bring up for you? Exodus, right? Exodus 10. Oh, we know about that. Yeah, we know about God taking apart the bad guys, God taking apart Egypt, Pharaoh. I mean, he stood against the Lord and he stood against God's people. And Moses came and said, let God's people go. And he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so, of course, I mean, he had it coming, right? And so his world was taken apart by locusts and many other plagues beside But this is God against us. Or you think about when God ruined the world during Noah's time with the flood. But wait a second, they had it coming, didn't they? I mean, the inclination of the heart was only evil all the time. That's why God tore the world apart with floodwaters back then, wasn't it? They had it coming. But this, this is God tearing our world apart. Just look at the language of verse 3. What is it that God is undoing there? Verse 3, before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Get this, before them the land is like what? It's like the Garden of Eden. The dwelling place of God with mankind where they dwell in harmony with Him, where things are peaceful and right and good. Which, which is something like that land flowing with milk and honey that the people of Israel were to inherit in the land of Canaan. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, what happens when God comes? A desert waste. Before them, the land is like a Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. Perhaps I'm, um, you know, labouring the point a little bit, but when the judgment of God comes to take apart evil, wherever that evil is, There's no escape. No walls are going to prevent it. Nothing that we've built up is going to hold it back. This is life itself being taken apart. Even there's no normal life to hope from beyond it. Should we fear? Yes. Yes, we should fear. But here's the thing. Does the passage stop there at verse 11? Is that it? Does the passage stop there. In other words, if you have got scared by Joel chapter 2, is that job done? Is that it? It seems to me that some folks would think that as a preacher, yeah, I'd probably be pretty happy with that. You know, if I made people a little bit scared again for another week, uh, that's probably job done. I reckon that's probably a, a pretty good preach. After all, if I've given you a good scare, you listeners will probably sort your lives out a little bit more, too scared to sin or something. Do you see what I mean? Do you know the caricature? Tim Keller says that is just not Christian repentance. It's not even really sorrow for sin. It reminds me of a certain federal apology this week that was criticised for being a non-apology. I'll read you Tim Keller rather than um, Tanya Plibersek though. Tim Keller, uh, he says, repentance, repentance out of mere fear is really sorrow for the consequences of sin. Repentance out of mere fear is really sorrow for the consequences 
of sin, sorrow over the danger of sin. It bends the will away from sin, but the heart still clings. I'm scared of God, I'm scared of being smacked, but I don't love God and I still love that sin. Do you see the problem? Raw fear ain't real repentance. The passage keeps going. Joel will not leave us with raw fear, but perhaps there's another pitfall ahead. Read with me from verse 11 as we assess religious ritual. Religious ritual ain't real repentance either. From verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army, his forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great, it is dreadful. Who can endure it? Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O God. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Religious rituals, a gathering, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together everyone. Of course, the trouble with rituals is, who are you to say whether that person's repentance, whether that person's ritual is the real deal or not? Who are you to say from the outside whether that person's genuine about their repentance or just being a show-off? Have they really turned back to God? Is their gathering, is their sacred assembly, is that for real, like heart and soul, for real, rend your heart kind of thing for real, or is it for show, just your garments kind of thing? It's picking up there on the language of tearing clothes in, a, in, in, in an expression of um, uh, regret. Uh, for evil. You know, I remember that passage, do you remember the New Testament passage from last week um, uh, that I read where we had John the Baptist, that's right, John the Baptist and the crowds were coming to him, what were they doing? They were confessing their sin, being baptised by him and then who, who else came out? Do you remember it was the Pharisees and, and do you remember what John said to them in this stinging kind of moment in Matthew chapter 3, but when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptising them, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Sometimes the fruit of repentance, it's obvious, and other times it's really subtle, and today... For us, I'd just like to zero in on verse 13 of Joel chapter 2, that one verse there, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. 
I guess I'm, I'm conscious that it is something that you need to weigh for yourself, that the person sitting next to you does not ultimately have a window on your heart the way God does and, frankly, the way you do. I might be able to have a little poke around at it, but in the end, it's something that you need to weigh for yourself. In my heart of hearts, is my repentance just a show? A charade? Is there genuine regret? Or is it a ritual and nothing more? Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. Um, Tim Keller, again here, he says something really interesting about this repentance just as an empty ritual thing, uh, which got me thinking about the place repentance has in my own life and how I respond to sin in my own life. Um, He says, it's kind of like we start treating God like this um, forgiveness machine and repentance is the handle that we turn to make the machine work, to spit out forgiveness and salvation. Uh, He put it better than I does. He says, we do not have to make ourselves suffer. He's talking about repentance. We do not have to make ourselves suffer in order to merit forgiveness. Let's think about this dynamic for a minute and the place repentance has in our lives. We do not have to make ourselves suffer in order to merit forgiveness. Can you relate to that? If, if I self-impose, you know, in my own life, being down on myself for a while, then God's got to let up, doesn't he? Then God's surely got to reward my sorrow and being down about my sin with forgiveness. Repentance, you see, in that instance, has become this handle that I turn to make the mechanism of God spit out forgiveness and salvation. And so if I've stuffed up, then I'll be sure to feel low about it for the rest of the day. Or if I've really stuffed up, then I'll be repentish for the rest of the week. Or if I've really badly stuffed up and maybe a few people have heard about it, then I'll be down about it for about the rest of the month or so. But by the end of that, surely, if I've been moaning my way around for a month, God's got to forgive me, doesn't he? Do you see the dynamic? Where I'm trying to merit forgiveness by being all sorrowful for a while. In religion, in other words, ritual, in religion, says Keller, we earn our forgiveness with our repentance. But in the gospel, we just receive it, receive forgiveness. Do you see the difference? It's subtle and I couldn't tell from the outside, could I? Which one was you? Brothers and sisters, repentance, it must involve real fear at real judgment. Those things are real but it may be very hard to distinguish from rotten ritual. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. Lastly then, if raw fear ain't real repentance and if religious ritual ain't real repentance, I want to say real repentance positively involves a self-surrender to a relenting God. And here we strip away the mechanics, we strip away our two-dimensional, scary God. Here is a personal encounter with a God who we urgently need to come to, who is real and whose character is really the background for that. Read with me again those verses from verse 12. Let's listen to how God's described here. Even now, verse 12, 
declares the Lord. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God, and on it goes. You see, the first 11 verses of these of this chapter, God is, you know, we are become death, destroyer of worlds. He's in destruction mode. But then, but, but in the end of verse 13, what is the God that we see there? What is the character? This is where we've got to know our Bible stories. We've got to know our history. We've especially got to know the story of the Lord Jesus. Those wonderful words there, rend your heart, not your garments, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate. So we need to know the Bible story so that we can cling on to that and go, yeah, absolutely he is. I've seen that before. This is the character of God that's being described. These aren't just words on a page to me. This is my theology built out of my Bible, this is the God whom I've come to know and love, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Just that last word there, he relents from sending calamity. He relents, let me dwell on that, this divine relenting, says Leslie Allen, this divine relenting isn't to be regarded as fickleness, as if God dilly-dallies or cannot make up his mind. The emphasis here is on the personal relationship of God with his people and his varying attitude toward them according to their sensitivity to his will. See, when you bring your sin to God in confession and in repentance... Do you have an awareness that this is the God to whom you pray? Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, he relents from sending calamity. Perhaps it's worth asking the prior question. Do you bring your sin to God in confession and repentance? It's worth asking, isn't it? Do, do you, is there ever this in your week-to-week life, this rending of your heart before God? Or do you try to keep it from Him, protect Him from it, or protect yourself from Him? Christian, don't let the only confession in your week be my meagre few lines of prayer up the front, you know, the one from earlier in the service. Don't leave it at that. Rend your heart Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Um, to conclude, I, I feel like in, in some ways, you know, those, those few short lines there about the character of God, I could bang, bang on about them for ages, but I want to show us instead that, that powerfully in action. Um, it, it's a passage that you know well, it's the passage that was read to us before, it's in Luke 23. Please turn with me there if you're um, following along in your Bibles, Luke 23, because where else do we see, not, not just the words on the page, but where do we see God as the destroyer of sin? so set against evil in the world. Where else do we see it more powerfully than when Christ dies under the judgment of God at the cross? 
And yet, where else, but in those dying words, where else do we see God's heart for sinners? Just listen to the the character of of Jesus, of God, um, in these words here. Luke 23, uh, verse 32, two other men, you remember the scene there, it's the day Jesus is crucified. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. We knew that the world would not be the same. A few people laughed, a few people cried, most people were silent. Brothers and sisters, I want to say, there at the cross, the day of the Lord, great and dreadful. There is a judgment that should have us quaking in our boots. Don't you fear God? We should. And yet... And yet, and perhaps it may be the first time for you, I don't, I don't know, I want to say to you, repent and believe. How did the thief do it? He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. Gracious and compassionate, abounding in love, slow to anger, relenting of calamity. From Joel 2 verse 12, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. How about we pray? Father God in heaven, your word teaches us that the heart is deceitful above all things. There are times when we just simply cannot trust our own hearts. We can be two-faced, even with ourselves, let alone before you, God. Work humility, work repentance in us, please, we pray. Father, thank you that you are merciful, that we know you to be gracious and compassionate. The Lord Jesus would even call for forgiveness of the men who crucified him 
and that he would be so quick to pronounce salvation over the one who turned to him on the very cross beside him. Father, may we learn from them that you are indeed gracious and compassionate, abounding in love. And so, God, may we call on you when we've stuffed up and made a mess of things, not just to turn the handle and manipulate you into giving us forgiveness, but, God, knowing that forgiveness is free with you, absolutely free, that salvation is free, well, free for us. It came at the cost of the life of our dear Lord Jesus. And we pray, Father, that knowing that, we might be so eager, so quick to bring confession, prayers of confession to you day by day and week by week. Lord God, may that work itself out in practice in our lives. May we be people who are quick to say sorry, quick to seek forgiveness from one another. May this be a community of your people that that knows how to apologise and knows how to seek forgiveness and knows how to extend it because we've received it so lavishly in you. Dear God, this is such a heavy message and yet you are such a good God to us and we pray, Father, may we go from here with hearts lifted, knowing the salvation, the secure rescue that we have in the Lord Jesus, that there is no terror there for perfect love has driven out fear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.